Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to stream our television show, get our recipes, or take our free online cooking classes. Enjoy the show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today I'm chatting with Jeff Henderson, who found his passion for food in prison. We discuss how we went from head inmate cook to executive chef at the Cafe Bellagio, the lessons he learned along the way, and how he launched a catering business behind bars. Uh, I was in federal prison during a time it was called Club Fed, and many of these men were very elitist, and they really didn't like waiting in the chow hall line with the rest of the convicts. So as a head inmate cook, I had access. And I would go back to the cell block unit and I would create these top ramen noodle dishes and, you know, nachos and cheesecakes and things all out of the microwave. Also coming up, Adam Gopnik fails to make mole at home. And we hear from J.M. Hirsch about his hunt for the perfect Sicilian caponata. But first, it's my interview with Yara Elmjui, a video producer and host at AJ+. In one video, Elmjui investigates the history of MSG phobia in America. Yara, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. So you did a video, um, part of a series of videos. This one was called Why Do People Freak Out About MSG and Chinese Food? So before we get to that, what is MSG? Ah, great question. All right, yes, so MSG is monosodium glutamate. So if you break it down, that's one part sodium ion, one part a glutamate ion. But yes, it is the purest form of umami. And umami is a term that a lot of chefs around the country 
today and just now generally are, are talking about. It's it's savory. You know, we have five basic flavors: sweet, sour, salty, bitter. And the fifth one is umami. It's it's savoriness. It's that sort of flavor that you might associate with meat or like a really delicious chicken broth or essentially in this case, you know, MSG. This was discovered in 1908 by a Japanese chemist, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Kikunae Ikeda. So basically he was sipping on his wife's soup and he was wondering to himself, like, why is this so tasty? And, you know, he went to his lab and, and tried to work with the ingredients of the soup and boiling things down and what have you. And eventually he kind of evaporated the, the broth. And what he was left with at the bottom was the purest form of that savory flavor was, little, you know, crystallized bits of monosodium glutamate. And where does that come from? It comes from kelp or what in Japanese cuisine is called kombu. So this came to a head in 1968 in the New England Journal of Medicine. A doctor wrote in, a Dr. Robert Ho Mang Kwok, who was a surgeon, and he claimed that he went to a Chinese restaurant. He got Chinese restaurant syndrome, <laughs> uh, which you talk a lot about in the video. So what is Chinese restaurant syndrome? Right. So essentially right. Uh, Dr. Ho Mang Kwok, as you mentioned, wrote this letter. Um, and then the journal actually put that headline on it, Chinese restaurant syndrome. And, you know, he mentioned a number of things that were going on. He claimed, you know, the Chinese food that he was having, you know, as a you know, Chinese immigrant in the United States were making him feel differently than they did back uh, in his homeland. And he speculated that it could be the wine, it could be the salt. Uh, and he also speculated MSG. It was just one of a number of factors. And essentially that MSG mention in the in the letter just blew up and people started writing in letters to the New England Journal of Medicine claiming that they too had experienced these symptoms. And what were the symptoms? Uh, there was, you know, general weakness. There was numbness, you know, pain radiating from the arms. There were heart palpitations. A number of different things that uh, wasn't quite clear exactly what it was causing, but some, some sort of mishmash of different symptoms. And it just kind of took off from there. This one letter, you know, spawned a number of articles and journalistic publications and even in the New York Times and a lot of places started taking this, you know, quite frankly, racist uh, terminology, Chinese restaurant syndrome and running with it. You know, just the role of media and the role of language has such an important influence on how we perceive things. And we have people thinking that, you know, this foreign food from, you know, this population of immigrants is somehow different, is causing these these sort of reactions in them, when in fact, MSG is used in a number of American foods. American food suppliers were among the largest consumers and buyers of MSG in the 1930s. And they were using them in American canned foods and American frozen dinners. The point is that a simple letter about an experience at a restaurant turned into an international, I don't know, emergency or fervor mm. uh, against uh, MSG and I guess against MSG in Chinese restaurants. Why do you think this particular one took off? Let's start off with the fact that, you know, in the 1960s, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring comes out and we start talking about pesticides and the use of that in kind of agricultural industry. And Essentially, we're starting to see a turn back against chemicals, quote unquote, or right. science. So MSG needs to be couched sort of in that context. And on the second hand, you know, there is there is a fear of immigrants. There is a demonization of, you know, essentially an entire people in a cuisine that are seen as outsiders. What is so interesting is millions of people were immediately convinced that they had experienced Chinese restaurant syndrome. In other words, people people identified with, with those symptoms, right? Mm -hmm. Do you think there was any truth to the physical symptoms? You know, I don't want to discount people's symptoms. Uh, you know, people are feeling something. You know, as the doctor that we interview or the, uh, the scientist that we interview in our piece says, it could, it could be caused by, you know, a number of other factors that are not MSG. It could be the grease. It could be high amounts of sodium. It could be some other ingredient in the food that's causing that sort of reaction. So what's the status today? The USDA says it's perfectly safe. Mm -hmm. I know that uh, the World Health Organization, other people, it's in the safest category of food <laughs> ingredients. So studies have been done, but nobody, I believe, has come up with any science that says that there's a problem with MSG. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, there is still to this day no double-blind placebo-controlled study that confirms definitively that MSG is the cause of these symptoms. But the, let's talk about natural for a second. Mm -hmm. um, People feel there's a difference between a naturally derived chemical, let's say if you derived MSG from kelp itself versus doing it in a laboratory. Do you think that's a real distinction or, 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 is, it, or is a chemical a chemical? 
there's there's different ways of producing monosodium glutamate. What we do in the United States is it's produced from corn, wheat, and beets. And then obviously Kikunai Ikeda in 1908 extracted it from kombu, kelp, in other words. Uh, it is the same exact compound. It's monosodium glutamate, whether you extract it from this or that. So that's the thing. When you when you basically sprinkle some of this MSG into your mouth, it, it is dissolving into a sodium ion salt and then a glutamate ion. So that will happen regardless of how you consume it, whether it's the kelp way, whether it's the ajinomoto beets, corn, and wheat way, or whether it's, you know, Parmesan cheese. So you, you would say putting a Parmesan rind in with a soup, for example, which is a typical culinary mm. trick, is the exact equivalent as far as your body's concerned to adding a quarter teaspoon or half a teaspoon of MSG to the pot? Assuming, yeah, the measurements are correct, it is scientifically, it should be, it should be the same. It's the same compounds that are going to be floating around in your mouth and in your stomach once your body starts to break them down. Better living through chemistry, <laughs> I guess. So, so after doing this video and all this research, at the end of the day, what, what's your takeaway? Well, I think we do need to be extra vigilant to how we frame this issue, what adjective we use, what noun we use, because that will make a world of a difference in how the world will see an entire population of people or an ingredient that could, in some cases, be connected to an entire population of people. So it's, it's, that's kind of my takeaway is, is words have meaning and, and we need to be vigilant as editors, as journalists to make sure we're responsible and, and we carry out our duties. Good advice. Yara, thank you so much for uh, joining us on Mill Street. Thank you so much, Chris. Appreciate it. That was Yara Elmjui, a video producer and host at AJ+. The video is called Why Do People Freak Out About MSG in Chinese Food? Right now, my co-host, Sarah Malt, and I are ready to answer your calls. Sarah is, of course, the author of Home Cooking 101 and star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television. Sarah, glad to see you. Thank you, Chris. Let's open up the phone lines. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, my name is Jenny. I'm from the Milwaukee area. I love Milwaukee. Yeah, so I have a question. I've watch like uh, some cooking shows and you know some famous chefs and you know other things from cooking classes i've heard this a lot to um bring your steak out or bring your meat out and bring it to room temperature before you cook it but the thing is like i've read an article by j kenji lopez alt on seriouseeats.com and like he did a lot of work on this where you would like experiment he took the meat out and he would take the temperature of the meat and turns out that even takes forever have the meat out. It doesn't even go down that much. It doesn't even come down to room temperature. No, he's um he's right. Letting meat come up to temperature is complete utter nonsense because it would take hours and hours. I mean, even with a steak, it's going to take a long time. But yeah. if you had a roast or something, you start on Monday, come back on Tuesday because it'll and, take that and long. And by then it will be, it <laughs> no would, good anyway. it'll kill you. But there is something you can do. We've mentioned on this show before. To cook a steak, take it out of the fridge. I salt it. Uh, and put it on a rack on a half sheet tray, baking tray. I do let it sit for a while just so like the salt hour. can penetrate. And then I put it in a 250 oven for 15 or 20 minutes, depending on the thickness of the steak, to bring it up to about 95 and then or 100 and then finish it in a skillet for a couple minutes aside or on a grill. That will bring, obviously, the meat up to temperature, but yeah. it also adds a lot of flavor and allows the salt to penetrate it and you don't overcook the meat. Right. And the other well. thing is the meat will be the, you know, internally, yes. let's say you want it medium rare, it'll be medium rare basically from top to bottom, right. not just in the very center. But try that. The other thing is people don't understand is that uh, meat cooks from the outside in. The outside has to get so hot that it conducts heat to the center. So the air in the oven or the radiation from the grill isn't cooking the inside. They cooks the outside, overcooks it, and then that heat is transferred by conduction to the inside. inside. So that's why heating it up very slowly so everything uh-huh. comes up to temperature slowly and a quick sear at the end is really the best technique. Yeah, so you but you're that. right. Bringing things up to temperature by letting them sit on the countertop is a complete waste of time. Right. But where does 
that come from? Because, like, I hear that well, piece of advice everywhere. It probably came from me because I think I remember saying that sometime back in the 1980s. Yeah, you know, we so, know so much more now than yeah. we did back then. I'm the perpetrator of some misinformation as well. Jenny, so uh, you're absolutely right. Kenji's right. And uh, give the oven method a, a shot. Yeah, I, I approve of that. Mistake. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Right. Thank you. Bye bye. All right. Thank you so much. This is Mostly Radio. If you have a question about instant pot dinners or slow cooker suppers, give us a call at 855-426-9843. One more time and slowly, 855-426-9843, or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Diane. Hi, Diane. from Atlanta. Okay. What is your question today? My question is about uh, finding... The perfect avocado. It's what I call avocado roulette. It certainly well, is. It is a bit of a problem. It's also like playing against the house because you always lose. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, it's I like do you don't know till you. Cut it's it not out a winning that. proposition. Always. Yeah. Well, what are you doing now? Um, to try to figure out if it's ripe. What I do is I, you know, kind of give them a light squeeze, see if they're soft at all. I pick the little stem off the top to kind of see what color it is inside. <laughs> but a lot of times somebody else has done that, so, you know, that doesn't work. But then you get them home, and you think it's the perfect day for it, and you cut it open, and it's all brown and spotty inside. That's because probably so many other people were squeezing it before you got to it. <laughs> I think that's part of it. Oh. Chris is looking. Oh. Chris, do you no, have... No, I, I, I buy them at least once a week, maybe twice a week, and I sit there... And I'll squeeze 20 avocados to find a couple. People say (laughs) the color or texture of the skin is important. I think that's complete nonsense. I've seen every possible color be rock hard and every possible Mm -hmm. color be not rock hard. So the only thing I do is I squeeze it, but you want just the slightest hint of not being hard. It has to have just the tiniest bit of give, and that's when it's perfect. But if, right. if it really gives, it's going to be over. Also, when you bring it home, as you know, and if you leave it out on the counter, 24 hours later, <laughs> they're all be. going to be rotten. I mean, <laughs> right. they, they, they go from unripe to rotten without going through the ripe phase. Right. Although keeping them in the fridge sometimes, I guess, helps. They will continue to ripen in the really? fridge. You may not have known that. So you don't hesitate. If you get one and you're not going to get to it for a day or two, put it in the fridge, which will slow down the ripening, but it will still ripen. But, but I, I would say oh. just the slightest hint of forgiveness. I agree. I tend to get them before I need them. I know it's hard to plan, but you know what you can do is if you will also, if you want to speed up the um, ripening, put them with a bunch of bananas. Cause that, That's what I was going to ask you. If yeah. you buy them and they're really hard and they're green, does it help to put them with yeah. an yeah. apple or a banana? But they, they, yes. They'll be good in two days on the counter, though. But, you know, even so, I know what you're saying because it's sort of like you don't know what magic you're going to find inside or what disaster till you cut it open. And sometimes, you know, you've, you've really thought you picked the right one and you open it up and you're like, no. It's but that's, right. look, may, may, I, may I, I comment? My luck is not good with them. Yeah. I, I would just like to comment that this is why we get up in the morning. There's a little element of chance. Yeah, this good is true. Good things happen, bad things happen. Just think of the joy when you find a perfectly ripe avocado, yeah, which doesn't happen that often, such a joy. then you've made your day. Right. So, okay, that's the best we can <laughs> well, do. Well, I appreciate your help very much. I'll, I will keep playing the lottery here, and hopefully I'll get a good one. Okay, Diane. That's why they call it a lottery. Yes. All right, take care, Bye. Diane. Okay. Thank you. Bye. You're listening to Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Up next, my interview with Chef Jeff Henderson. That's right after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, 
man, this beer is good. <laughs> there are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. <laughs> yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are and I think that makes it very food friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavor of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it you're reminded like oh wow yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Mostly Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. After Jeff Henderson was arrested in 1988, he spent almost a decade in prison where he discovered his true calling, food. Today, Henderson is an award-winning chef, public speaker, also author of four books, including his best-selling memoir, Cooked, From the Streets to the Stove, From Cocaine to Foie Gras. Jeff, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you for having me. You've got an impressive resume here. <laughs> Executive chef at uh, Bellagio, chef de cuisine at Caesars, a best-selling book, Cooked. Uh, but let's start at the beginning, and let's talk about lessons learned, because your story is about how to learn the right lesson, I think, in part. So you started with your dad, and I think you started with, with the wrong lesson. What was that? Well, you know, my father and mother divorced when I was a— uh, young boy, and my mother raised my sister and I. And from not having my father in my life, um, I kind of took a liking to many of the desirable men in my community, um, which led to eventually stealing, stealing bicycles, which led to stealing cars, eventually selling weed, and then cocaine um, during a kind of a dark period of my life. 
But, uh, you know, that time away in prison allowed me to redeem myself and figure out who I really was as a man. Yeah, I want to ask you about that because one of the most interesting parts of your story is being in prison and you saw the Nation of Islam followers and at first you stayed away. Then you went to a meeting and um, you, you there was lots of messages you could take away from that. But I think self-respect well, you, you tell me, but self-respect was maybe one of those. How did you figure out to take that message and turn your life around with that? Well, I think for me, during that period of investigating and learning more about the nation, the attraction to me was the social component. And it was a brotherhood. I mean, it was a, a moment in, in time where I began to study and learn about black history here in America, but also black history back in Africa. When I began to study and read on powerful black men for the first time in my life, I read about men who were intellectuals, who were scientists, who were builders, who were attorneys and educators. It just blew my mind. I was like, you know, why wasn't I taught about this in school? So it was, a, it was an awakening. It was a crash course on global history. Uh, you had a catering business in prison. <laughs> Could you explain how that worked? <laughs> I never thought that existed. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was an underground catering business. You know, I didn't have a license or anything. <laughs> uh, but uh, after getting fired on my job and put on punishment in pot and pans in the kitchen, I eventually rose to become the head inmate cook and baker in several prisons. Hmm. Uh, I was in federal prison during a time it was called Club Fed. So you had the likes of Michael Milken, Ivan Bosky, right. uh, Jeffrey McDonald. You had Rosario Gambino, head of the crime family. And many of these men were very elitist. And they really didn't like waiting in the chow hall line with the rest of the convicts. And so as a head inmate cook, I had access to a lot of extra food that other inmates didn't get access to, huh. like hard-boiled eggs, red onions, And I would go back to the cell block unit and I would create these top ramen noodle dishes and, you know, nachos and cheesecakes and things all out of the microwave. And it wasn't like we had a spice rack in prison. So I used to take nacho cheese Dorito chips and put them in a sock and crush them. And then I would use the Dorito chip dust as seasoning to enhance the flavor of canned chicken, canned tuna uh, when I couldn't get real cheese or squeeze cheese wasn't available in the inmate commissary store. So did you ever serve any of the people you just mentioned, like Michael Milliken or anybody else or Gambino? Uh, yes, Mr. Gambino uh, was a great customer of mine, and, I, and he's out <laughs> now. He was serving 45 years. Uh, he was running the heroin ring in all the pizza shops in New York City in the late 70s, and uh, he was a big customer, especially for the chicken. And believe it or not, there was a few guards who used to come for my uh, prison fried chicken. They would come to the cell unit and be like, Henderson, what you got? <laughs> uh, we didn't have fried chicken often for the main population because we didn't have the deep fryers that produce right. that much fried chicken. So every now and then we were able to get my hands on a little all-purpose flour and uh, my four seasonings that I used to make this chicken. It was a, a big thing, big deal on the yard, you know? Well, you said later on at Caesars, didn't you used to serve prison fried chicken to a lot of the <laughs> a lot of the guys at Caesars too, right? I mean, Actually, that was at Bellagio, Bellagio when I became okay. an executive chef yeah. of Cafe Bellagio. Um, I had fried chicken Wednesdays, and it was a prison recipe. And it's <laughs> funny because uh, Terry Lani, who was the president's CEO, and many of the top C-suite executives would come down to the cafe and eat fried chicken. They'd flip their ties back, take their sports coat off, tailor jackets off, and they would throw down on the chicken, and we would be in the kitchen. Guys would be laughing and stuff. <laughs> uh, it was, a, it was, a, it was a, a, a laugh that no one knew about, that everyone out there was eating prison fried chicken. <laughs> so you, you go to Vegas. No one will hire you because you have a record. You go to Caesars, and they give you a shot in an interview. So what, what was the interview? Well, you know, it was interesting. Uh, it was an Italian guy, a really fine chef, and uh, a guy who really um, looked beyond biases towards uh, men and women who were impacted by the criminal justice system. And one of the, the questions that he asked me kind of threw me for a loop. He says, uh, Henderson, uh, 
And I asked you a question. I said, yes, sir. He says, have you ever killed anybody? I said, no, sir. He says, can you cook? I said, yes, sir. He says, well, I want you to come in and do a tasting uh, for me and my guys, and uh, we'll go from there. And I came in the next day, did a six-course tasting in 60 minutes, and blew them away with some of my California French cuisine, and um, they hired me on the spot. So what were the six dishes you cooked? Well, you know, I had a diver scallop dish with like a— Kind of like a corn mock chew, a little succotash. Mm-hmm. I did a foie dish with uh, minted pineapples with a brown sugar sauce. But what was really funny is that I was in banquets doing this tasting. You know, banquets have the plain bone white china. Right. So as a, a, a convicted felon and someone who never been to culinary school, I had to stand out. I couldn't be ordinary. I couldn't cook ordinary food. I had to do everything extraordinary. So what I did, I came in early, and I went around to all the top restaurants at Caesars, and I got different china for each dish. And even the chef mentioned, like, Chef, where did you get that china? I said, well, sir, I haven't stolen anything in over 30 years, but I did visit your restaurants and lifted some china so I could make my food stand out. And they (laughs) laughed, and uh, I still got the job. Talk, talk to me about cooking for kids. You got five kids. I got six kids. So I have some thoughts about it. But, but what would you tell a, a parent of young kids about cooking for kids? Oh, my kids love scrambled tofu. <laughs> I didn't expect that. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, my whole family is vegan. And um, my wife raised them that way. My wife is vegan. She was vegetarian when I met her. Um, my kids love country potatoes. Uh, we use a dairy-free butter, and I spice that up a little bit, a little cayenne, because, you know, vegan food, you got to really yeah. hit that flavor on there to really get the kids enjoying. My kids love grits. We do the vegan pancakes and, you know, dairy-free waffles and things like that. So they eat whatever any other kid eats. It's just dairy and animal-free. So are you vegan as well or, or just your kids and your wife? No, sir. I eat it from the snooty to the booty. <laughs> I eat it all. So you, you go out and get a steak occasionally, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. Not. But my kids give me a hard time. Like if I'm eating chicken or something, yeah. you know, my youngest daughter, uh, uh, Grace, she says, ooh, daddy, you're eating a leg. And I say, yes, and it's good. And it was roasted with a little bit of sage and salt and pepper on there and some seasoning spice. <laughs> so, so wait, wait. So, so you're, you're sitting at the table, man. You got half a roast chicken in front of you, right? And then someone else has got scrambled tofu. I mean, is this? <laughs> yeah, but, but I mean, so at dinner time, if I'm having chicken, we'll have the uh, animal-free chicken strips. Um, we, they eat the same. You know, they eat meatloaf, a gumbo. I make a vegan gumbo. My family's Creole from New Orleans, my parents. And that's a dish that we cook to bring everybody together. I would love for them to eat real gumbo, yeah. but that's a fight I don't want to have with my wife. Well, here's what you, <laughs> here's what you do, because I've done this too. Saturday morning, get a big cast iron skillet out and start cooking some bacon. And that smell will (laughs) go all through the house. My oldest daughter is now 30. And I and I just started cooking bacon every Saturday morning, and it, it worked. Uh, you know, yes. we, we got there yes. eventually. Yes. Anyway. Well, I can tell they love the smell of Daddy's food. Yeah. But as of now, they won't touch it. Actually, my daughter sits on the committee with Sedesco at LMU to help focus on healthier alternatives mm-hmm. for vegan and uh, vegetarian students. So they're pro-vegan right now. <laughs> well, you're a good dad, you know. You're letting them make their choice and respecting it. Yes. And that's, you know, you're you a better guy than I am because I just kept cooking that bacon on Saturday. So the cooking started in prison. But did you have any inkling this was something you wanted to do before you ended up doing that job in prison? Never in my life. Um, I always say that food found me in a very dark place. Because when I was in prison was the first time that I really ever felt valued when inmates would come up to me and say something great about the food Mm -hmm. we put out. Jeff, the meatloaf was really good. The chicken was flavored, the vegetables, because we took big pride in whatever ingredients or seasonings the prison guards gave us to produce a great meal. And imagine being in prison with lifers, guys serving 25, 30 years, food is the most important thing to a person in prison. And when you get a a nice piece of 
protein or some perfectly steamed or sautéed vegetables. That humbles you. It calms you down. And it's a tiny little remembrance of home. That was our family time. I mean, we were all who we had was us men in prison. So food uh, was at the the pinnacle of, of my prison experience that really helped me overcome that hump and be able to go out in the world and contribute something. Chef, Chef, it's really been a pleasure, honor to meet you and uh, to have a chance to chat with you. Likewise. That was Jeff Henderson. He's an award-winning chef, public speaker, also a best-selling author. The Little Engine That Could began as a part of a sermon by the Reverend Charles Wing and was published in the New York Tribune in 1906. We all know the mantra, I think I can, which the small blue engine repeats while pulling a long line of heavy freight cars up a very steep grade. On the way down the other side, he repeats the phrase, I thought I could, I thought I could. You know, Jeff Henderson's life saga from drug dealer and prison inmate to chef and author is a pretty good reminder that difficult beginnings are sometimes transformed into happy endings. Jeff Henderson thought he could, and in fact, he did. Right now, I'm heading into the kitchen of Milk Street to chat with J.M. Hirsch about this week's recipe, Sicilian caponata. J.M., how are you? I'm doing great. You know, you get to travel more than anyone else at this company. I do. Uh, and probably the most successful trip you've taken last year was Sicily. Because you found probably 30 great recipes that we never <laughs> heard of. Uh, and the one we're talking about today is caponata. So what is caponata and how did you find it? So caponata is kind of a very iconic Sicilian dish. It's eggplant, onion, zucchini, pepper, some tomato sometimes. And it's a real classic example of agrodolce, which is a, a blending of sweet and sour, which is an example of the North African and kind of Mediterranean and Italian influences that all come together in Sicily. Problem is, so I ate my way around Sicily eating caponata, 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 and they were all kind of sweet and sour mush. And so I was really disappointed because I thought, well, here's this great vegetable dish that I thought was perfect for Milk Street, and suddenly I thought wrong. And then I was in a little town called Syracuse, and I went to a restaurant called Cecilia Intavola, and the owner, Doriana Gasualdi, introduced me to her version of caponata, and it blew me away. So the traditional caponata, they fry eggplant in a ton of oil, then they add all the other ingredients and just cook it for an hour or so until you get this mush. She blows that up. She cooks each vegetable individually. So each individual vegetable only cooks as long as it needs to, and then she stirs it all together at the end, adds the vinegar and the sugar for that sweet and sour effect, and it was a completely different dish. It was amazing. So let me ask you, so... For years and years, food writers have been going to Italy. We think we know dishes like this, and then we go back, it turns out we actually don't know it because there are lots of different variations, right? Right, right. Well, and, you know, this is a great example where you can go one town, you know, a mile away from where you just had it, and it'll be a completely different dish. And this is a case where you just got to do the footwork. You know, I ate my way literally around Sicily looking for different caponatas until I found the one that was right for us. So this sounds like a lot of work if you're cooking each vegetable separately. So Actually, I, no. How do we do it? It takes about 30 minutes at most. You know, you again, you start with your eggplant and you fry it up. But the difference is we don't leave it in the pan like a lot of people do. We take it out. Then we add the zucchini and the onions and we cook that. Take it out. Then we add the peppers. Cook that. Take it out. Then we combine it all with the vinegar and the sugar. We brown some tomato paste for kind of that richness that we liked better than like a fresh tomato. And we stir it all together, and it's on the table in 30 minutes. It's incredibly delicious. So how come I don't get to go to Sicily to try this? (laughs) It sounds great. You have to do all the work back here. I guess so. So caponata direct from Sicily from uh, Doriana Gesualdi. Cook everything individually. It's not mush. It's terrific. Thank you, Jam. Thank you. You can get this recipe for Sicilian caponata at 177milkstreet.com. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Coming up, Adam Gobnick and I discuss some of the world's most challenging dishes to make at home. We'll be right back. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first. 
and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Up next, Sarah Moult and I will be answering a few more of your cooking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hey, this is Evan. Hi, Evan. Where are you calling from? Oakland, California. How can we help you today? My question comes from one of your article uh, slash recipes. In the one on Taiwanese beef noodle soup, you had mentioned rendering beef fat in place of cooking oil and then said cooks would do well to learn this lesson. And I thought, yeah, I agree. So give me that lesson. <laughs> you know, how? what should I understand about the different, like chicken, beef, or pork fat? When can I save it? When can I reuse it? How? You know? The lesson is lard, pork fat, or schmaltz, chicken fat, or suet, you know, beef fat, are very flavorful starting points. And all recipes these days call for vegetable oil, really, or canola, which doesn't give you that much flavor. So if you want that flavor, a little bit of that goes a long way. But really good lard, leaf lard, it's from around the kidneys and the pig, it doesn't taste like bacon. It's not porky. It's just got a nice, deep flavor. I'm a big fan of those fats because they add a ton of flavor, but most modern cooks are scared of using them, right? Well, one thing is they don't have a high smoke point. So if you want to sear something in, you know, beef mm-hmm. fat or chicken fat, it's going to smoke before you can really sear it properly. So that's the only downside. Maybe more to finish something or saute something gently, not to get color on it. So then when do you have any advice for, like, you know, let's say I'm not making frequent trips to a specialty butcher where I can get these things. How can I day-to-day start to squirrel this stuff away? When should I save it? When should I not? Do you cook with chicken a lot? Yeah, fair amount. As long as it doesn't get too dark, just pour off the chicken fat and save it in the freezer. 
as it accumulates because you're cooking or if you make a beef stew or a pork stew, uh-huh. just save the, you know, that fat that solidifies and that's easiest when you refrigerate it because then it becomes solid. Then you can scrape it off real easy. Uh-huh. Um, just get in the habit of saving it and throw it in the freezer and so that when you're cooking again something that's appropriate like beans to use pork fat, sure. you got it. I've got a can in the freezer that just I pour all the cooking grease into, but it'll have a mix of like pork and beef and chicken. Should I worry about that having mix or just no. scoop it out and use it? No. Use it. Be happy. What do you say, Chris? <laughs> I always say be happy. No, actually, I would separate them because chicken fat and pork fat and beef fat are quite different. But I wouldn't throw out the tin he's got. No. I don't think it's the end of the world to just use your mixed fat. Yeah, yeah, I would do two things. Use uh, animal fats and MSG in your cooking, and you'll be <laughs> like most people do in the rest of the world, and you'll be way Great. out of it. Anyway, thank you for calling. Thanks, Evan. Yeah. Thank Take you. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? My name is Rachel. Rachel, where are you calling from? Pittsburgh. So how can we help you? The Dacquois recipes that I say, that I see, do this, do this, I do this, do this, I put it in, it's, you know, an inch and a half high. It says uh, it'll expand a bit while it's cooking. I take it out and it's an inch tall. Let's talk about egg whites. How are you whipping the whites? What are you adding to the whites? I use a a stand mixer. How many egg whites? Are these like eight egg whites? No, four. Okay. I would add a half teaspoon uh, of cream of tartar, quarter to a half. First of all, Chris, we should tell everybody what a dacquoise is. Good point. It's crisp meringue layers uh, with uh, nuts in them that are folded in, and then you crisp them up, and then you layer it usually with buttercream or some other kind of filling. It's, it's supposed to be a dry, firm meringue, so you have to do it at a low temperature. I have in my most recent cookbook a recipe by Joanne Chang, and it's a hazelnut dacquoise. And what she talks about, and I've experienced this too, the trouble with egg whites is it's so easy to overbeat them, and particularly if you're using a stand mixer. But I use a stand mixer too, and so the point being, you know, start slowly, let it get foamy. Generally, I don't start adding the sugar until it gets to soft peaks, and that's what also Joanne does in this recipe. And she adds them in three batches. So you need to add some of the sugar and then let it dissolve and then some more and then let it dissolve and then some but, more. But if it's already, wait a minute. And then you how, take it back up to almost stiff. Yeah, I, th- I think that's the key. There are recipes where you do have to beat the egg whites past soft peak. And I think this is a recipe oh, absolutely. where you definitely but, want more structure. You have so much sugar in the egg whites. It's very hard to overbeat egg whites with that much sugar in it. Yeah. Sugar, sugar really helps And the helps cream them. of tartar is also going to do it. There's yeah. another trick. Take a tablespoon of cornstarch, quarter cup, three-quarter cup of water, heat it so you get that, you know, dissolve it, get that paste, and then add that to the beaten egg whites. And that also might help when it's baking and cooling. It might keep the structure better. But I think it's the egg whites is the key is in terms of how much you beat it. Yeah. So it's interesting because I think Chris is saying beat it more and I'm yeah. saying don't overbeat it, which is one of the things that Joanne talks about because she says they need to expand and they will if you haven't overbeat them. And I see now, of course, I frantically looked up Joanne Chang and hers is the recipe that I was using. Oh. And <laughs> she, one, she does not call for the cream of tartar and I... I'm going to put in a quarter of a teaspoon, i got to say. The other thing is fresh eggs and fresh egg whites do better. Yeah. Okay, we're going to summarize. Try the cream of tartar. I would beat the egg whites a little bit more to give them more structure. It's very hard to overbeat without much sugar. I would try a tablespoon of cornstarch, a third cup water, heat it up, you know, whisk it, and then drizzle that in very slowly after the sugar goes into the egg whites. I would also test the oven problem is at 225, if it's 200 versus 240, it would radically change the timing. Yeah. Get a good oven thermometer and just make sure because it may be your oven's also off 20, 30, 40 degrees, which is common. Yeah, that's So those are the four things I would look at. Okay, wonderful. Okay, give that a shot and do let us know. Thank you very much. Yeah, uh, do let us know. Yeah, we'd like to see some success with us. Right. Perfect. All right. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. You're listening to Mill Street Radio. Whether you're a beginner cook or a pro chef, Sarah and I are ready to answer your questions. Call us at 
855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, it's Mark Priestley from Palo Alto. How are you? I'm good, Chris. I'm a big fan of yours. Oh, thank you very much. You, you might not be a big fan after I can't answer your question, but I'll give it a shot. What is the question? It's on the uses of extra virgin olive oil. You know, it's should you only use good extra virgin olive oil for raw purposes, or should you use it in your frying and baking too? You know, and as kind of a, a person who likes to cook at home, it, it seems to me that it's a, very similar to cooking with wine. You know, if you wouldn't drink the wine, why would you cook with it? And I think it's probably the same with Evo, but I'm hoping maybe you can clear this up for me. Or This is apples and oranges, but I can try. First of all, Evo is not highly processed or refined, which means the smoke point's low. If you get a light olive oil like Pompeian, the smoke point's actually pretty high. But a really good Evo is going to smoke at a really low temperature. So that's the main reason why you wouldn't use it, especially if you're using it in a hot skillet because you're going to end up smoking and burning. So that's the first reason. Can I just add something to that? The thing about when you get past its smoke point is it starts to break down. So you're, you're affecting the flavor, but also it can catch fire a lot quicker. And also all the volatiles are going to disappear. Yeah. And so... You're just losing the flavor. You know, I I use grapeseed oil. Yeah, me too. The flavor is going to be lost anyway. Now, in baking, you have to really like the taste of olive oil because if you use like an olive oil cake, which is a classic Italian recipe, it's going to have a very strong olive flavor. So that's why a a lighter oil might also be a good choice. Wine, you, you make a good point, but wine's not being used as a fat to saute in. So it's a different issue. But the other thing that I've learned recently, and this is sort of off the topic but related to how to keep olive oil, is besides keeping it dark and keeping it cool so you don't leave it by the stove, it really hates air. It oxidizes. So getting a really big bottle of really good olive oil is maybe not a good idea. You know, it's better to have it in small bottles where there's less air as you use it. It's kind of, I guess, similar in in that way to wine. Again, absolutely. Maybe olive oil is not quite so fragile, but... California Olive Ranch, you can buy very small, small bottles. Yeah. And that's, I use small yeah. bottles. Yeah, and they have both everyday and also high-end. Here's what I would do. I would have a grapeseed oil as your all-purpose cooking oil, and then I'd have a really good drizzling oil and keep the bottle small. Right? Yeah. Yeah, and they come in, you know, you can find them in most stores in either 250 or 500 milliliter bottles, so the smaller bottles would make more sense. Yeah, yes, I get a 250, absolutely. yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for calling. Thank you, Mark. Hey, thank you guys both, and uh, I really appreciate uh, your insights. Well, I hope our reputations are, in, <laughs> for whatever they are, are still intact, yes. sort of. You're you're very easy to talk to, so I appreciate it. So, uh, thank you guys. Yeah, okay. thanks for your call. Okay, really Mark, it, thank so. you. This is Milk Street Radio. Now it's time for this week's culinary tip from one of our listeners. Hi, my name is Martha. My tip is to combine avocado with sauerkraut. To me, the richness of avocado and the tart crunch of a good sauerkraut, or kimchi, which is really Korean sauerkraut, are perfect complements. I can suggest using this combination in three ways. First, just mix them up. If you mix vigorously, the avocado will become creamy, like a mayonnaise. A very nice salad. Okay, second, you can puree the mixture with an immersion blender. And this makes a sauce that can be used as a dressing for salad or vegetables, fish or chicken, grains, tofu, whatever. And the third thing is just to use the combination in sandwiches and sushi. That's it. Thank you. Enjoy. If you'd like to share your own culinary hack or secret ingredient on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. One more time, 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. Next up, let's hear from regular contributor, Adam Gopnik. Adam, how are you? I am well, Christopher. How are you? I'm good. I'm, I'm waiting to be surprised or befuddled, uh, whatever is on your mind this week. Surprised, befuddled, diverted, or, or devastated by whatever peculiar train of thought I've cooked up. Well, actually, I will tell you where this conversation began, or at least where my end of it began. 
and that is with a wonderful visit to Mexico. I had never been to Mexico before. And one of the things that I was overwhelmed with and overtaken by was the sheer quality and variety of that sauce-based foundation, call it what you will, mole. Now, I had always thought of mole as essentially a chocolate sauce, that it was, in effect, applied um, unsweetened chocolate to um, proteins. But of course, as you know, I'm sure, that could not be farther from the truth. And when I began to try and assemble a mole myself, having fallen in love with it in its many applications in Mexico, I discovered that it is probably the single most complicated thing I have ever attempted in the kitchen. Have you ever done a mole? Yeah, I, actually, I was in Oaxaca a few months ago, and uh, I discovered that some moles, like a green mole, actually are very simple to put together. But a black mole, a dark one, is, of course, complicated. A mole negro. It has the, the best recipe I was able to bring home from Mexico with me involved no less than 33 separate ingredients, including bread that had to be toasted and dried chilies that had to be moistened and fresh chilies that merely had to be chopped and on and on. And the chocolate, though it gives the, the sauce its distinction, uh, is only a small part of this much larger thing that we call mole. And it got me thinking about two things. One is um, the way in which complexity plays an enormously important role, not so much in the things we think of as haute cuisine, as fancy cooking, but in the things we think of as folk cooking, as uh, vernacular cooking. So nothing is more complicated than a mole. And in the same way that nothing is more complicated than a curry, a true curry, a real Indian curry, has nothing to do with curry powder, as you know. It's an immensely complicated melange of ingredients and techniques. And it got me to thinking of a broader principle, which is that evolution of all kinds, um, culinary and biological, tends to proceed not so much from the simple to the complicated, but from the richly complicated to the increasingly more uh, economically simple. Mole expresses a kind of tolerance for time and a capacity for complexity on the part of what we think of as supposedly simple or vernacular cooking that far outstrips our own uh, intuitions about what great cooking is like. I, I might add, though, a, a twist to this, uh, is that it's all it's relative in terms of time, because when time is not a factor, which it was not uh, 100 years or 200 years ago, then complexity is a relative term because it's not it's not it was not viewed as complex, right? It was just part of what someone did during the day to prepare food. So maybe complexity in a modern age is a different thing than complexity 200 years ago. I think that's right. I think that it's part of a very very large and old uh, culture of slowness, preparation, and time. But it is striking to me that so much of what we think of as supposedly simpler cooking, things that are not part of our up-to-date molecular restaurant culture, in fact reflect immensely complicated and slow-moving and multi-part, almost wildly, as I say. I have this mole recipe in front of me that I've tried to imitate that involves 33 separate ingredients and essentially about 20 separate culinary steps. Got me thinking, too, uh, Christopher, more irreverently, almost heretically, about Highly complicated things that are not worth doing. I'm sure you have a, a list of them. I've always been struck, for instance, that the making of vermouth, whenever I read about it, seems to me not worthy of producing vermouth. Vermouth is simply not good enough to be uh, have to be produced in about the 16 steps that it seem to be required to make vermouth. It's a complicated but not a great art, whereas mole seems to me a complicated and, in its own gastronomic way, a great art. Here's the question. Did you actually make that recipe with the 33 ingredients? No. I will confess. I will give you a terrible <laughs> confession I knew. that I looked at the recipe, <laughs> I studied the steps, and I found a simpler recipe. Not that I don't think that mole is well worth the time, but I recognize that no matter how well I made my mole, it would never compare to the mole I'd had in San Miguel Allende. And that, therefore, far from paying tribute to the complexity of the indigenous gastronomic culture of Mexico, I would simply be palely and inadequately attempting to imitate it. Adam Gopnik, once again, you mused on the nature of complexity, culture, and food, and given us a lot to think about. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Chris. That was Adam Gopnik, staff writer for The New Yorker. 
My Mole experience was a bit different than Adam's. In Oaxaca, I learned that mole is almost anything you want it to be. It can be as simple as a green mole, roasted chilies, onion, and tomatillos thrown into a blender with fresh herbs, or perhaps a yellow mole, roasted ground corn, used to thicken a super stew. The culinary world loves to import fancy recipes, leaving behind simple, everyday dishes. That's because we like to think of other cultures as exotic, and so we imagine their food to be equally foreign. Everyday food, however, offers a very different story. People around the world are, in fact, just like us. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late or want to binge listen every single episode, you can download Milk Street Radio on your favorite podcast app. To learn more about Milk Street, go to 177milkstreet.com. You can find all of our recipes there, watch our TV show, or order our latest cookbook, Milk Street Tuesday Nights. We'll be back next week with more food stories, and thanks, of course, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Stephanie Cohn. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugars. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Haley Fager. And audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chubup Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.